Our next section of Psalm 119 this evening is centered around the Hebrew letter Yod. It's sort of interesting, the Yod letter, this stanza representing this Hebrew letter, is the small Hebrew letter. Jesus referred to it, at least in the English translations, as a jot in that famous passage in Matthew 5.18, where he says, Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away until all is fulfilled. And he's referring to this very small Hebrew letter. Verse 73, Psalm 119. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. I love how he begins this section proclaiming, your hands have made me and fashioned me. Here the psalmist proclaims God as a creator. And he understood that he has certain obligations to God because he was fashioned by the hands of God. That phrase that he uses, fashioned me, it's probably a reference from Genesis chapter 2 where it speaks of how God fashioned man from the dust of the ground. But make no mistake about it, the psalmist says here very clearly, very plainly, that God is his creator. Now in our modern age, with its widespread denial of God as creator, it has a much lower sense of obligation to the creator God And despite this deeply seated rejection that man has against God as creator, man's obligation to his maker remains. We understand that, right? Just because if you would go back in a time machine to 500 years ago and people would live with a much greater sense of obligation to God as creator, and if you were to fast forward to our own day when men by and large do not sense this obligation, the actual obligation hasn't changed one bit, has it? It's not as if we could say, well, I don't feel like I'm obligated to God as a creator, therefore I'm not. Well, no, the obligation remains even if you don't feel it. And the psalmist understood what many people today either forget or deny. But we're not shy about saying it. To say that God is our creator is to say a lot. It's to recognize that we are obligated to him as the one who gives us life. That we are to respect him as the one who is greater than we are and smarter than we are. I mean, friends, if you can create something, you're smarter than the thing you can create. And if God has created us, we owe him, if nothing else, the respect of saying, you are a wise and intelligent creator. It means that we recognize that he, as our designer, knows what's best for us. Isn't that shocking? That the one who made you knows what's best for you. And it's also to recognize that since our beginning is connected to the invisible world, so our end will be also. And the idea that God has made us, and he's made us so wonderfully, that that he made us so elaborately, if you want to say that, God has made us so wonderfully, so it means that we serve this wonderful, wise, creating God. I love how the psalmist puts it here. He says, your hands have made it. That puts a very personal touch on it, right? It's not like your factory in the sky has made me. 
No, Lord, it's your very hands. It's your very wisdom. One of the old Puritan commentators that I'd like to read, a man named John Trapp, he has an interesting quotation from a prayer that apparently Queen Elizabeth used to pray. She would pray this. Oh, look upon the wounds of thy hands and do not forget the work of your hands. Yes, he has the wounds in his hands, but you are the work of his hands, fashioned by him as a creator God. Now, therefore, with this thought of God as a creator, what does he do? He does the very intelligent thing to do. He cries out to God and he says, give me understanding. If he's smarter than you are, if he made you and knows what's best for you, if he at least has the care and the regard and the concern of it to make you the way you are and put you in the situation you are, shouldn't you look to him for guidance? Shouldn't you cry out to heaven and say, God, give me understanding? He recognizes something that is often misunderstood, that somebody can ask for help and understanding from God, our creator, and that we're obligated to do this because our maker. Friends, we gain so much understanding by considering God as our creator. And then he says in verse 73, that I may learn your commandments. This understanding of God as creator and man as creature should lead to this humble relationship where man admits his need to learn and to learn God's word, that is his commandments, and to receive his word as commandments from a wise, loving, and righteous creator. And then he goes on now in verse 74. Those who fear you will be glad when they see me because I've hoped in your word. You know, the psalmist considered that his right life, that what God was doing in his life would be an encouragement to other people who fear God. And this is an additional reason to hear and obey God. Listen, friends, none of us lives a life of isolation. Whether you like it or not, and you may not like it, but it's true nevertheless. Your Christian life, your spiritual health impacts people around you. We would like to think that when we backslide or, 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 or allow ourselves to be cast away in some way or another in the Christian life, that it has no effect upon other people, that, that we just uh, you know, backslide unto ourselves. You don't. When a Christian backslides, they almost always drag other people along with them, do they not? As a matter of fact, I've seen this. I've seen this with great tragedy. I have seen Christians who, in a very cavalier way, they, they decide, they, they almost decide, they almost make up, they almost wake up in the morning and decide on a resolution. Well, I'm going to backslide for a while. I'll just allow my life to spiritual decline. I'll go out and have some fun, so to speak. And I would put fun in quotation marks, right? And they decide that this is what they're going to do. And they do this back in their mind. They say, well, I'll just turn back to God later, right? You know, I, I, can just, I, I mean, uh, sometimes I like the sins. Well, sin and he'll forgive me and it's great. I'll just get back with God later. And they do. L- later on, their heart is broken and they come back maybe with a genuine spirit of repentance and they return to the Lord. But the others that they dragged down with them do not. And is that not a painful, painful thing to bear upon the conscience and to answer for before the judgment seat of Christ. Oh, yes, you came back from your season of backsliding. But what about those others that you dragged down with you? No, instead, we should live the kind of life that the psalmist speaks about here, one that will make others rejoice. I'll read it again. Those who fear you will be glad when they see me. 
because I have hoped in your word. His life could give encouragement and gladness to other righteous people because his hope and his attention were put upon the word of God. And without this hope, the righteous life would be impossible. Going on now, verse 75, he says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let, I pray, your merciful kindness be for my comfort according to your word and your servant. Let your tender mercies come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Notice what he says here in these verses. He says, your judgments are right in faithfulness. You have afflicted me. You know, his attention upon the word of God gave the psalmist wise and godly perspective even in a season of suffering. He can proclaim the righteousness of God's judgments even when he's afflicted. You know, friends, it's one thing to say, and sometimes we say this, do we not? We say, listen, God has the right to do with me as he pleases. He's God, I'm not. I'm his servant. Go ahead, God. If you want to wail away on me for a while, you're God and I'm not. Is this not the sort of uh, spirit that we take into things sometimes in our Christian life? But instead, how much more glorious when we can stand before God in a season of affliction and say, your judgments are right and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. God, the affliction, the the great trial in my life, even those long, sustained, painful trials, even in the midst of that, we say, Lord, that is not an example of you abandoning me. It is an example of your faithfulness to me. One commentator that I read named Bridges said this, that the psalmist not only acknowledges God's right to deal with him as he saw fit, been even his wisdom in dealing with him as he actually had done, but his faithfulness in afflicting. Not his faithfulness, though he afflicted, but in afflicting him, even if it was consistent with his love, but the very fruit of his love to him. You know, this was the place that Job eventually came to through his long and desperate struggle with the Lord through the book of Job. He came to know that the judgments of the Lord were right and he even understood God's faithfulness in affliction. And that's why he can pray this. He says, let, I pray, your merciful kindness be for my comfort according to your word. He prayed on very solid ground here, asking on the basis of promises made in God's word. And with such promises, he asked for merciful kindness in his affliction. Therefore, he says, according to your word. I find a lovely prayer that was reportedly prayed by Monica, the mother of Augustine. This is what she prayed, quote, Lord, these promises were made to be good to some. And why not to me? I hunger, I need, I thirst, I wait. Here is your handwriting in your word. And I am resolved to be as stubborn as, until, as necessary until I have obtained and thankful afterwards as by your grace I will be enabled. Your promises are the discoveries of your purposes and they're promised as materials for our prayers. And in my supplications, I am resolved every day to present them and offer them back to you. What a beautiful prayer. 
And so he says, according to your word, to your servant. I love that. The psalmist rightly received the word of God as something personal to himself. Did you see that verse there? Did you see that promise there in verse 76 where he says, according to your word to your servant? If you'd like to write in your Bible, I would write the little words right there, your servant. I would write me. No, no, don't write David. Write write me. Because it's you, right? If you are his servant, then that's you. It doesn't pass you by. These promises are for you. According to your word, to your servant. And then he goes on beautifully in verse 77. Let your tender mercies come to me that I may live. For your law is my delight. You see, I love this prayer of the psalmist. He's in a great season of affliction, is he not? But yet he's unashamedly saying, Lord, be tenderly merciful for me. He's not have this attitude of, okay, Lord, give it to me more. Hurt me more, Lord. Hurt me more. No, no, no. He's very real, saying, God, I'm afflicted, but I know that you're faithful. Won't you be tender and merciful towards me? He prayed with the understanding that God's tender mercies come to him through the word, through the law of God. And by staying close to God's word and letting it fill his life, he also received God's tender mercies. Without the gift of these tender mercies, we find ourselves defeated and discouraged. Yet we can have them and we can pray that God would send them to us. Then continuing on here, verse 78. Let the proud be ashamed, for they treated me wrongfully with falsehood. But I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me. Let those who know your testimonies, let my heart be blameless regarding your statutes, that I may not be ashamed. First of all, he begins there in verse 78 by saying, let the proud be ashamed. And he said this not only out of sense of God's righteousness, but also out of a sense of being personally wrong. Those proud ones had treated him wrongfully with falsehood. Therefore, they should be put to shame. And shame does belong to the proud. It doesn't belong to the humble children of God. And let me tell you, if these proud ones who opposed the psalmist knew that David or that the psalmist was praying against them, they had reason to be afraid. My friends, we should live lives of such close communion with God that if ever we were to pray against somebody, they should be afraid. I hear great stories about this. I heard one story written in a commentary by Adam Clark. He wrote of an old Scottish woman who was part of a Bible study group that met upon the property of a great lord, you know, and the, the, the great lord and this English lord decided he would, you know, forbid uh, these home Bible studies in the, the houses that were on his property and they lived in the servants' quarters, of course. And this woman was rightly offended that he would prohibit them to come and gather and study the Bible in their own homes, even though the homes happened to be on his property. And so she came with great respect And she knocked on his door and the butler showed the the, the master, the Lord, to the woman. And he saw this old Scottish woman and this English Lord said, well, woman, what can I do for you? And she said, and I wish I could do a Scottish accent, but I just can't, so I won't even try. (laughs) And she said, well, my Lord, you know, we've heard that you want to shut our, our Bible study group down. 
and we think this is wrong and we think that it's not right and we suggest that you don't do this and that you turn back from your way and if you don't, then we'll pray you dead. (laughs) And she turned and she left. He decided to allow the home Bible studies. I heard a more contemporary story and I won't put a name to it because you might know the name, but a, a woman, a pastor's wife, as a matter of fact, not my dear Ingalil, though this might be the kind of thing she would do, but another pastor's wife. And again, you might know the name and, and there were people uh, from outside the church protesting and, and doing terrible things and spreading lies against uh, her husband and all. And, and she went up to those who were causing the ruckus and slandering such. And she went up to them and she said, you guys should stop. And they said, no, we're not going to stop. We're going to keep doing this. And she said to the guy, she said, I curse you in Jesus name until you repent. And she turned on her heels and left. And the guy thought nothing of it. But within a week, he had called the church office begging to speak to the pastor. <laughs> Tell your wife to call off that curse. My life is in a shambles. I repent. I repent. Wasn't that a beautiful thing? The proud ones who oppose the psalmist, if they knew that he was praying against them, they should be afraid. My friends, God knows how to defend his own who cry out to them. And this is not one of the great reasons to draw near to God and live a life close to him. So that he will be our glorious defender. When we live close to him, God takes care of his own. Of course, he takes care of his own, even those who stray away from them. But he may allow a measure of affliction to draw that one closer. Then he goes on. He says, but I will meditate on your precepts. In contrast to the proud who loved lies, the psalmist would meditate on the word of God. And he said, I will meditate on your word. Then he said something glorious as well, following on this. He said, let those who fear you turn to me. You see, the psalmist recognized the presence of proud enemies, but he did not believe that all were against him or all were against God. There were others who feared God, and he could find companionship with them. Even though he had enemies, he hadn't become paranoid. He didn't believe that everybody was against him. No, there are those who fear you, Lord. And they had much in common. They were those who knew God's word. They knew his testimonies. And so they said, let my heart be blameless regarding your statutes. You see, the psalmist was comparing himself with the proud who spoke lies. He recognized that his own heart needed fixing, right? Oh, my friends, don't think for a moment that just because you have people who oppose you or have people who say bad things against you, that somehow you have been transformed into an angel. No, 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 no. You need to pray this, Lord, let my heart be blameless. I know that it's not. And just because there are people around me who may be in some sense worse off than I am before you, Lord, I still need to do my business with you, God. And then he says, that I may not be ashamed. My friends, that is a valid desire. It's not wrong to pray that. The psalmist wanted a life lived unashamed. And the desire was for no sense of inward shame because he knew that he was right with God and no sense of public shame before the eyes of others. And his obedient life, 
He says, let my life be blameless regarding your statutes. This would lead to an unashamed life. My friends, I think that's what God wants for you. Do you know the freedom of an unashamed life before God? Not that you're perfect. No, no. You know that very well. But you've been forgiven. You've been cleansed. You've been filled with the Spirit of God. You live with the sense of adoption as a son or a daughter of God. That's an unashamed life. You see, in this section, we're taught by the repetition of the plea, let, let, let. And taken together, it makes for a very healthy life with God. He says, let me be comforted by your kindness. Let me live by your mercies. Let me be vindicated over the proud. Let me be in the presence of those who fear you. Let my heart be blameless. These are wonderful prayers for us to pray. Lord, let it be so. Father, that is our prayer. We thank you for the richness and the glory of your word. And now, Lord, we just want to worship you. And I pray, God, that you would give us the gift of an unashamed life before you. Again, Lord, not because we know we're perfect, because we're not. But because we're loved, because we're forgiven, and because you're working in our life. Let us not be put to shame. In Jesus' name, amen.